Now, my desire for us this morning as we consider Galatians here is to look at specifically walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. And specifically what that looks like. What does walking in the Spirit look like? And my desire is that as we have received instruction as to how we ought to walk and please God, that we excel still more in this area in our life. To excel excel still more in walking by the Spirit of God. Now, as we look in Galatians, we're going to be in Galatians 5 and Galatians 6. But just a few verses we're going to focus on here this morning. And let's just get a little background and reminder of the book of Galatians and what it's about. It's a book written to confront a false gospel being spread in the churches of Galatia. And you could read more about this, the background in Acts 13, 13 to 14, 28. But it's written to confront a false gospel. So it's a very serious letter. And you can hear that as you read through the book of Galatians. At the very outset in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul says that, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by his grace for another gospel, which is not really another, a different gospel, another gospel, but it's a false gospel. So, I mean, there's just a very serious tone throughout the book of Galatians dealing with the gospel of Jesus Christ, dealing with what it means to be justified before a holy and righteous God and how one is justified before God. Because what you have, the false gospel being presented in the book of Galatians, which is not really a gospel at all, is one that says one is justified by Christ. They would acknowledge Jesus. Yes, Christ. They would even say they believe in Christ. But it was Christ plus law-keeping. And the ones espousing this view uh, were mainly Judaizers, professed converted Jews. And they were in a, a church that was made up of many Gentile converts. And so here are these professed Jewish converts in churches where there are many Gentiles who have no relationship to the law whatsoever and say, well, listen, I mean, you guys need the law as well. And if if you don't have the law, at best, you're going to be a second-rate citizen in the kingdom of God. So they were telling the Gentile believers that their justification was also dependent upon law-keeping. But it's made very clear, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning, but it's made very clear in the book of Galatians. You could read in 2.16, a key verse in the book here. Galatians 2.16, it says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Made very clear. He states it three different times. We are justified by faith in Christ, not by the law. And he goes over and over uh, that again and again through this epistle. So it's made very clear. Justification is by faith in Christ, not by law-keeping. Well, as we come to this section that we're going to be in this morning, it actually starts in verse 13 of chapter 5. Paul foresees an argument here by the Judaizers to the message that the believer is free in Christ 
which means he is free from the law. They, they say, okay, this, this salvation by grace, this free gift, that, and that delivers one from the law. They say, well, look, you're, this is going to result in just licentious, sinful, wicked living. You have to preach the law. You have to have the law. How else are you going to restrain people? How else are you going to get them to do what they're supposed to do if you do not have the law? And Paul, I don't believe that this is necessarily a problem within the churches of Galatia, but that Paul foresees this issue um, and this argument presented by predominantly these false teachers. And so, let's read here in verse 13. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And Paul makes clear here that just as the legalist perspective is not right, neither is the libertine view of the gospel right. The libertine view in that freedom in Christ means freedom to live however I please. Freedom even to indulge the flesh. But Paul says, look, freedom in Christ is not a freedom to sin, but it's a freedom from sin. It's a freedom to walk in obedience to Christ, in obedience to the Spirit, not a freedom to justify sinful, wicked behavior. And so the Judaizers, though, they would read this and say, well, see, that's why you need the law, to restrain this. And and Paul says, no, that's not it. And Paul doesn't just give a middle of the road between legalism and libertinism. He gives a completely different road. And it's the road of the empowering spirit. Look what he says here. Verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Go on down to verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then verse 22, very familiar passage here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And look what he says here, against such things there is no law. No amount of law can produce these kind of things. It comes out of the heart through the work of the Spirit and regeneration. And then look in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So Paul doesn't give a middle of the road, he gives a different road, and that is the road of the empowering Spirit in the life of, of the believer in the life of the one who has been regenerated, made alive. See, for the libertine and the legalist, there's no place, or they don't understand the dynamic, the power, the implications of, of regeneration, of being made a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus, being born again. There's no amount of law that can do the work that the Spirit does in the life of an individual. Well, that verse 25, let's look at 25 and 26, and this is going to set us up to consider what walking in the Spirit looks like. 
He says, if we live by the Spirit. This is to be made spiritually alive by the Spirit. And, and he, he says, if. The way this is written in a conditional sentence here, by saying if, it leaves the reader to consider whether or not what he is saying is a reality in their life. If I live by the Spirit. Well, let's, let's go back and look in chapter 3. And read with me verses 1 through 5. And, and here Paul talks about how they received the Spirit and then how they are to continue in the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? What's the answer there? Hearing of faith. And he goes on in verse 3, Are you so foolish then, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, so then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. You, how'd you begin in the Spirit? You began through the hearing of faith. You began by faith, not by works of the law. How are you going to continue in the Spirit then? By law keeping? No, by faith. The same way that you received it is the same way that you continue the Christian life. By grace through faith. By grace through faith. And so as we come back over to Galatians 5 and verse 25, so he says, if we live by the Spirit. And Paul tells him, listen, you, you have received, it's been evident, it's clear that you received the Spirit by the hearing of faith. Well, then, it only follows that you walk then by the Spirit. It doesn't change and go back to now you doing your, it yourself, doing the Christian life on your own, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, bucking up and, and trying harder and exerting more willpower. No, it's just as you receive the Spirit by grace through faith. So he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us then walk by the Spirit. Let's conduct ourself, ourselves by means of the Spirit. So it only follows that if one lives by the Spirit, one has been made alive, one has been born again by the Spirit, it only follows then that he or she walks by the Spirit. And in verse 26, he says what this does not look like. So negatively, walking in the Spirit is not verse 26, where he says, Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Let's not become boastful. Let's not become prideful. Let's not have an exaggerated view of ourselves that then shows itself in challenging one another, provoking one another, in envying one another. John Stott says about this, in regards to how they think affecting how they treat others, John Stott said this, This is very instructive verse because it shows that our conduct to others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. 
And he's going to come back to this in the next verse in chapter 6. How or what we think of ourselves will affect how we treat others. But we can see here that this challenging one another, this envying one another, and if you go back up, look at verse 15 of chapter 5. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, he says, take care that you are not consumed by one another. This is the fruit of legalism and libertinism. This is, this is the fruit of a, a legalistic lifestyle and the fruit of a lifestyle that says, listen, this is my life. I can live and do as I please. This is what it results in in our relationships, biting, devouring. Challenging, provoking each other, envying one another. And we didn't read the deeds of the flesh, but we read the fruit of the Spirit. And it can be clearly seen, listen, this is not the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's the deeds of the flesh. But we all know how we can oftentimes justify behavior in our relationship with one another as being... Or feeling that we're fine in relationship with God and how we're acting and treating towards this person. When in all reality, there's no indication that this is of the spirit, but instead is of the flesh. But we think, but I'm right on this. Well, you very well may be right. But it is not the fruit of a heart that is being led by and controlled by the spirit. But instead, it reflects one of these biting and devouring of challenging and envying one another. And something interesting here, and as Paul talks about walking by the Spirit and what this looks like and how this is fleshed out just in a few ways here he he talks about in Galatians, that it's in our relationships with one another. It's with one another that walking in the Spirit's bears fruit in, not only, but in a big way, it does, in our relationship with one another. So he says, let's, let's be careful. You know, if there's tension in our relationship, something we need to stop and think about it is, okay, is, am, am I being prideful in this? Am I being boastful in this? Is there envy in my heart towards this person? Am I provoking this person to sin? It, it, am, am I gossiping? Am I, is there biting and devouring taking place? We need to step back and, and, and look at our own hearts to really be sure that if I say this is of the Spirit, we can be sure this is of the Spirit and not of the flesh. Okay, so now positively, what does this look like? What does walking by the Spirit in our relationships with one another look like? Paul picks out a few things led by the, led by the Spirit here to share with the churches of Galatian, Galatia what walking in the Spirit looks like. First, it looks like restoring brethren caught in sin. Walking in the Spirit looks like restoring brethren caught in sin. Look in verse 1 of chapter 6 here. Brethren, even if... Even if, so he says, even if, if somebody is not walking by the Spirit, and this would be a a believer, right? This would be a professed believer, one who has been made alive by the Spirit, but they are not walking by the Spirit. He says, even if someone is not walking by the Spirit at this time, and they have been caught in any trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So he says, even if someone is caught in sin, biting and devouring, tearing them down, challenging them, envying, that's not the right response. Even if someone is caught in sin, that's not the right response. The right response is you who are spiritual. The spiritual would be those who are walking by the Spirit. And notice, this is Paul writing to the churches of Galatia. This isn't a pastor's meeting. He's writing to believers. He's, re- he's, he's writing to the saints of all ages, both men and women, young people, elderly people. If anyone is caught in sin, sin has been brought to light. And it has been, it's not that you're, you're digging around for it, but God in his grace and mercy has brought it to light. And he has brought it to, to light in your life of this other individual. What is the response here? You who are spiritual, restore such a one. And notice he says, any, any trespass, any sin. Not picking and choosing the bad sins and the not-so-bad sins, but he says, any trespass, any sin. And notice the goal here. Restore. The goal is restoration. If a brother or sister in Christ is found in sin, the goal is restoration. And if we have that goal in mind, that's going to impact and affect how we go to that person. You sometimes we might say or you might even hear people say in regards to talking about another individual or pointing out something in a person's life. Well, I just tell it how it is. That's not necessarily a good thing or something that makes it right or okay. Just speaking the truth. Because that could very well work to the destruction of that person and not to the restoration of that person. If we're looking towards the restoration of that person, then we are going to temper what we say. We are going to examine what we say. We are going to consider and take to heart all matters in order that we can approach this person in grace and love that by God's God's grace in their own life that they might be restored to fellowship with him and with others. So the goal is restoration. The goal is not just to bring sin to light and say, okay, I confronted it. I dealt with it. But the goal is restoration. This is the act. This is the act of a true brother or sister in Christ. In our culture today, and in church discipline, it's a foreign concept in many places. In our culture, we have a culture of tolerance. And it's unloving. It's, it's mean to judge a person in regards to what they are doing, in regards to choices they are making in their life. But this is a very loving thing. <clears throat> it's a very loving thing to see sin in a person's life 
and desire that that person not continue in the path of that sin and reap the consequences of that sin. Think about it. Jesus says in Matthew eighteen sixteen, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is something the Lord instructs us in to confront sin. If you see sin, not go and tell other people about it. But if you see sin, go to your brother. Listen to Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. It's an enemy who would see us going down a a dangerous path, a destructive path, and any path of sin is destructive, is it not? It's an enemy who would see us going down that path and ignore it and say, oh, I just love him too much to mess up his day-to-day. I love him too much to confront this in his life. I just That's not loving. That's what an enemy does. Proverbs 28, 23. He who rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. In the Proverbs 29.5, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a, step, a, a net excuse me, for his steps. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. And that's what we're acting like. If we're going to see someone, another brother or sister in Christ, in sin, walking in sin, and say, it's not my place to say anything. We're acting more as an enemy than a friend. But praise God. Praise God for Christian friends who, as Hebrews 3.13 says, encourages us day after day while it is still called today so that our hearts may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's our responsibility to one another, to encourage each other day after day so our hearts will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. When I was about 12 years old, I was at my grandma's house, and she had play sets for the kids to play on, and I was playing with another boy um, on this play set, a dome jungle gym, and it started caving in, and I fell. And the way I fell, I caught myself on a lower bar. And at first, I didn't realize anything was wrong. Uh, When I stood up, this other boy I was playing with was just staring at me with his mouth wide open. And I didn't know what exactly it was about first. And I looked down at my wrist. Instead of being straight, it went like this, a gooseneck. And after I looked at it, I realized it was hurting. And, uh, <clears throat> but what if I went to the hospital? I did. My grandma drove me right to the hospital. But what if I went to the hospital and the doctor there looked at me, just a 12-year-old boy, and he, and he, he realizes, you know, what is going to um, take to set this arm in place he says you know what i love him too much to put him through that pain you know i just love him too much to to re to reset that broken arm i just love him too much to to do that that's not loving what's loving is saying you know what a little pain right now is going to result in a, a more healthful life in the future for this young man and be able to use his arm and his wrist again it's a very loving thing. 
And so it is. When God brings sin to light, the sin of a brother or sister in Christ, and that brother or sister in in Christ that has seen that sin goes to restore that person in the Lord. It's a very loving thing. And oh, for brothers and sisters in Christ like that. Oh, for a church like that. And oh, for a church and for this church, for our church, to excel still more with this heart, with this love, having such love for one another that we refuse just to let each other go on in a path of sin and not say anything. And he warns us, he says, look to yourself. Look to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So see, there's no room for pride in this. There's, there's no room for being like a bull in a chiny closet and going up and just digging up everybody's sin and saying, you have sin here and oh, you need to get this right. It, it, it's not that. He says, you look to your own heart. You look to your own self so that you too will not be tempted. See, when we go to another brother or sister in Christ confronting sin, we recognize that at some point in time, that very well will be and could be me. That this person that I'm confronting today could be the person confronting me tomorrow because of sin in my life. Jay Adams, he says, we come with the attitude that I'm here to help you because you need it and because Christ sent me, not because I think that I am any better than you are. We have the attitude, I'm helping you today, but who knows whether I may be in need of your help next week. That's the attitude that we are to go in. And this is walking by the Spirit, having the heart, having the desire that if a brother or sister is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Isn't it amazing that one of the means our shepherd uses to shepherd us is other sheep? I mean, one of the means that he uses to sanctify us in our lives, one of the major means that he uses are other sheep, are other believers. And when God brings sin to light, when he brings our sin to light, or when he brings the sins of others to light in your, to you, we need to see it as a grace of God, that this is a gift of God, that he is not allowing the sin to continue covert, undercover, hidden. But it's God's grace that he brings this sin to light, that it may be confronted, that it may be dealt with, and we need to see it as that. And we need to remember that. Even as we have sin in our own lives, and when that sin is brought to light, we wish it wouldn't have been, but we need to remember that this is a grace of God that has been brought to light, and God refuses to let me, who has been made alive by His Spirit, to continue on this path of sin because I am His and His Spirit is indwelling me. That's a gift of God. And it's a gift that he has revealed it to us. And will we be responsible with that? So we need to want this, brethren, to be this and to receive this. 
We need to want God this much, want holiness this much, want the power of the Spirit this much to welcome and to receive confrontation in our life. Let me just give a few things that maybe would hinder restoring and being restored. Not being around each other very much. Not sharing in each other's lives. Not making ourselves accountable to one another. Not talking about spiritual things with one another. And one he's already spoken of here, we've talked about a little bit, is pride. And pride which goes both ways. Pride that hinders us from receiving restoration and pride that hinders us from restoring the one caught in sin. This pride could show itself in our lives in that we're not approachable by people. That, that people, that other believers would not feel comfortable coming to us because they know what they're going to get. They're going to get justification. They're going to get maybe outbursts of anger. I'm, they're going to get more of the porcupine welcome. When they get near to us. And we're going to keep people at arm's length. Why? Because of pride. But James says that wisdom from above is intreatable. It's ready to listen. It knows that there could be sin in my life that I'm not aware of. This pride can also show itself if we have the attitude that we don't care if someone has a problem with us. You know, hey, that's their, they're just going to have to get over it. That family member, that, that friend, that brother, sister, hey, they're just going to have to get over it. This is how, who I am. This is, this is me. Take it or leave it. In regards to confrontation, it could be a, a fear of how people will respond to us. When people do confront us, it could show itself in that we always have an excuse or a scapegoat for what we have done or how we're acting. But may we have a heart for this, and may we make ourselves, avail ourselves to this. And let me, on one other thing on this point here. And and that is just a, a few suggestions on when to confront sin in a person's life. The first question should be, is this something that love can overlook? Love covers a multitude of sins. And there's just going to be a lot of things in our relationships with one another that love simply overlooks, that we just put up with one another over. It's not necessarily sin, but it's just something that, for whatever reason, just makes us feel weird (laughs) in another person. And you know what? Love needs to just cover it. And we just say, you know what? This isn't an issue that I need to go to this person and confront. It's more an issue with me and my heart. And I just, I need to be more loving to this person. And love covers it. So that needs to be the first question. Is this something that love can overlook? But when are someone's sins too serious to overlook? And Ken Sandy, he has a book on biblical peacemaking. And he gives these points to consider. 
when we need to confront sin, when someone's sins are too serious to overlook, and we need to do Galatians 6.1, and we need to go to this person and seek their restoration. <clears throat> One is when, when it is dishonoring to God. When are someone's sins too serious to overlook? When it is dishonoring to God. When it is damaging your relationship. We say, oh, love covered it. But when this issue keeps coming up and it keeps affecting our relationship, love's not covering it. When it's hurting others. And or when it's hurting the offender. So there's just some helpful guidelines of of when do we actually need to go to a brother or sister and seek their restoration and confront sin in their life. So what does the walking by the Spirit look like? It looks like restoring brethren caught in sin. And then secondly, it looks like bearing one another's burdens. Verses 2 and 3. He says, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Thomas Schreiner, he, he said of this passage here, one of the prime indications of life in the Spirit, according to Paul, is concern for one another, which is manifested in practical ways. I mean, these are very, I mean, concrete examples of what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, isn't it? It's not some mystical thing or experience, but it shows itself in very practical day-to-day living and predominantly in our relationships with one another. And so he tells us to bear one another's burdens. This is what walking in the Spirit looks like. And certainly bearing one another's burdens involves sin, as we looked at in verse 1 of chapter 6. But it also goes beyond this. It pertains to any burden a fellow believer may have. Be it financial sickness or the like. And we have the responsibility to bear one another's burdens. And what's the example he gives here? And what's he, or what's he tell us here? Thereby fulfill the law of Christ. No greater example, no other example than Jesus Christ himself. And think about this. Let's just think about this for a few moments here. Our burden that has been borne by Jesus Christ. A burden that has been borne by all individuals, a burden so great that no person in their own could bear themselves. The burden of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that, right? The soul who sins will die. This is a burden that all mankind carries and bears as they enter into this world. There's the burden of the law, not just the burden of the sin, but the burden of the law, because the law requires complete obedience. A far greater burden than any mankind, any person could bear the burden of the law to walk in obedience of the law, not just pretty good, not just better than the person sitting next to me, not just better than most, but fulfilling the law perfectly. And it's a burden because God is perfectly holy and he requires people to be right. Perfect. He requires perfect people in order to be right with him. 
But in God's grace and mercy, he sent a burden bearer, didn't he? He sent a burden bearer, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who bore our unbearable burden of the wrath of God for our sin upon himself on the cross. A wrath-satisfying sacrifice. That's a burden bearer, isn't it? We have the weight of our sins and the wrath of God bearing down upon us. And God in his mercy looks at his son and his payment on the cross and places our sin on himself. He takes that burden just as Pilgrim and Pilgrim's progress when he came to Calvary and he came to the cross. That burden that he had been carrying had been weighing him down. He looked to Jesus and that burden was removed. Not only did he remove our burden of sins, but he removed the burden of the law from us because he fulfilled the law. Think about this. To Jesus Christ, the law is no burden. To Jesus Christ, he fulfills the law perfectly, something no man can do. And God says, if you believe in him, if you turn from your sins, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his perfect law keeping will be your righteousness. And no longer does God see us in our um, failings in regards to the law, but he sees us and he's, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, there's our example. And we are exhorted as we have had the Lord Jesus Christ remove our burdens, as we have experienced this burden bearing by Jesus Christ, so we are to have the heart and the desire to bear the burdens of others. And what Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will we not be like Christ and bear each other's burdens? But he says, listen, remember, verse 4, that you must examine yourself. You must examine your own work. See, we are to be, we are to bear one another's burdens. But we are going to be responsible for our own actions, for our own decisions here upon this earth. And he, so he warns us in verse 4, examine your own work. And then you will have reason for boasting in regard to himself Alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. When we read this, we read verse 2, we could, there's the temptation. There could, could be that we sit back and we say, you know what? If you would have been there, I wouldn't have done this. If you would have been there, then I would, have, I, 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 wouldn't, I would not have sinned in this area in my life. If you would have been there, or we can... Pass the blame in our life to someone or something else. It's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. It's, it's not my fault. It's my spouse's fault. It's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. No. Examine your own work. Because you will be held accountable. You will, as he says in verse 5, each one will bear his own load. And that's in the future. That's in the future whether it be the judgment seat of Christ or whether it be before the great white throne of judgment, each person is going to bear their own, Lord, their own load before the Lord. So let's bear 
one another's burdens. That is what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. And then lastly this morning, walking by the Spirit looks like sharing. Verse 6. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. I mean, isn't this amazing how practical this is? And in, in, in some respects, how simple this is? Bearing one another's burdens. He's not talking about just serious burdens. He's not just talking about significant burdens. He's talking about whatever burden there might be in the believer's life. Bear one another's burdens. He says share. He's not talking just just about those significant events in people's lives where there is the need that somebody has that we share. No, it could involve many different things. And here specifically, he focuses on how we are to share good things, all good things, with the one who teaches him. Keeping in step with the Spirit looks like sharing with those who teach us the the word. Which would predominantly be the pastors of the church, the elders of the church. And notice here where the priority is for the churches. It's the word. Notice the priority that we are to have for the elders in the church, for the pastors of the church. It's the word. It's the teaching, the preaching, the faithfulness to the word of God. And he says, share all good things with the one who teaches you. All good things. And obviously, this, re, this would involve financial support. And in regards to this responsibility... It says this in Romans fifteen twenty six to 27. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. We have a responsibility. We have received blessing. We have received the word, the teaching of the word, the faithful teaching of the word. We have a responsibility to support this. In all good things, we said... Financially, but he says all good things. There was a, an elderly man at a church I was at, and he, he had pastored for a number of years. And one member in his church, every year, when he, he planted a garden, he had a nice garden, when the harvest started coming in, the first thing he did from that harvest, he took some to the pastor. He took some to this man. Share all good things. It's not just financial It can involve many different things in supporting and encouraging and providing for those that we are indebted to for the teaching, the faithful teaching of the Word of God. So keeping a step with the Spirit, it looks like sharing with those who teach the Word. Our response to the ministry and ministers, it reflects the priority of the gospel in our own lives. What What is our response? What is our attitude? What is your attitude towards the pastors, towards the elders, towards those who are faithfully teaching and preaching the word of God. That will reflect the priority, the true, the reality in our own heart if the gospel is truly a priority. 
And we can expand this in regards to sharing. Yes, here, the emphasis is on those who teach us the word. But you know what? This goes throughout all relationships in the Christian life. And this seems like some small thing to share. I mean, this is what we teach our kids from the moment that they can start walking and crawling on their own, isn't it? Share. Share with your little sister. Share with your little brother. Share with the whoever. You need to share. You need to share. This seems like something childish, but it's not. Share. Share. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, that we have a heart, not just looking to ourselves, but we think, God, you provided for this for me. How would you then have me share this with the saints? How would you have me to share this with my unsaved neighbor? How would you have me to share what you have provided for me, God? Not for me selfishly, but to share with others and reflect your goodness and your grace and your mercy in my own life, God. It's not something small. Do not ignore the Spirit's promptings to share. We must not ignore it. I think of a, a professor I had. He was actually a, uh, he was a missionary for a number of years. And I remember a story he told um, when they were on, I don't know if it's furlough or deputation, but they basically just had enough money to get to this church they were going to go to and present the ministry and their field and these things to the, uh, this church body. And when the love offering was taken up and it was presented to the missionary, it wasn't enough to cover his expenses and to go where they needed to go. And for him, it was a little discouraging. And they were packing up and getting ready to go. And just before they were leaving, there was a knock on the door. And it was a believer from the church coming and saying, you know what, I felt the Lord would have me give this to you. And it was a check for a sum of money, enough to help them along their way to the next place. We must not ignore the Spirit's promptings to share, and we must not underestimate what the Lord might be doing through our sharing. We think, oh, God, this is, just, this is something it's so small. It won't make a difference. How many of us know about the widow and the two mites? Insignificant. Two little coins. All these rich people are going in at the treasury and throwing their money and you hear it rattling and they're giving so much. Oh, look at them. And Jesus picks out the widow who throws in her two mites. What about the little boy with his, his, his lunch, five loaves and two fish that he shared? How many of us know of that story and of that young man? A cup of water given in Jesus' name, he says. A cup of water. And I think about the one who gave Christ a drink on the way to Calvary. Must not underestimate. And and stories upon stories could be told of, of missionaries, of saints, in your own life, of little things that maybe seem would seem insignificant to others, but to you it was a great grace and mercy of God that this person shared with you. Who might the Lord have us share with today? This reminds me of a quote by, a statement by C.S. Lewis. 
He said this, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Both good and evil increase at compound interest. The little things, the little things of of sharing. Don't neglect it. Don't think it insignificant. In the work of God and his kingdom, nothing is insignificant and nothing will be forgotten by God. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. So very concrete instruction and commands that we hear in in the book of Galatians this morning of what it means, what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. So let's not be deceived about what walking in the Spirit looks like in our own life, and let's excel still more in walking by the Spirit, seeking to restore brethren caught in sin, bearing one another's burdens, and sharing with the saints.